Hi, everybody. I'm Francesca Maxime, and welcome to this edition of Rerooted, where we really are inviting us all to discover our inner wisdom and root back into that which is natural and here, unearthing our own radiance and brilliance, and really discovering the roots that we share. As we know, trees talk to one another underground and alert one another to dangers in the soil, so to speak, and toxins and where there's nourishment. And we as people um, ideally organically do the same. And sometimes we are more in sync with one another and in alignment around that. And sometimes we are not so much. But I'm working today with, um, talking today rather with somebody who is um, working on all of that, all that kind of collaboration, that connection, that communication. And it's um, this wonderful teacher uh, of cultural somatics, uh, Tada Hazumi. And I'm just going to read you his little intro, their little intro, excuse me, that's my own first bad. So I take a mea culpa on that and we can get into that. And I want to. I'm a practitioner of a healing practice. This is Tada talking that uh, they refer to as cultural somatics or sometimes cultural somatic therapy. The simple premise of cultural somatics is that cultures are in fact bodies that emerge from networks of relationships. Within this model, oppression such as white supremacy and heterosexism are understood to be expressions of trauma in cultural somas, bodies. Following the work of cultural somatics is facilitating change by supporting the co-healing of individual and cultural bodies. Cultural somatics is both a model for one-on-one -on -one and group facilitation work that addresses oppression such as white supremacy as trauma itself and social activism that is built upon the foundations of trauma-informed somatic healing, such as relationship building, unconditional positive regard, and titration, working gently and slowly in processing emotional material to avoid re-traumatization. Ta-da, ta-da, welcome. Thank you for joining me on Hello, here. hi. Hi, um, and I just wanna claim my pronouns and say I'm a she, her, and I'm here in Brooklyn, New York, and I'm, I'm on uh, currency uh, Lenape land and invite you to um, share your pronouns with us and maybe get into a little bit of a conversation as I try to move forward to incorporating more of this with um, really being more aware and culturally responsive and competent uh, into what uh, identifying ourselves with our proper affirming pronouns means. Yeah, um, my name is Tada. I, um, I, my pronunciation is like a little bit probably off. I'm in Teojake, uh, so-called Montreal. So that's a meeting place for um, many indigenous nations who uh, you know, live and work through here. I also, some of the time based in unceded coastal territories. So that's Vancouver, Victoria, BC, and all the other little islands around BC. So I'm also uh, go back and forth and uh, yeah I use I think I think I'd already said this I use them and they pronouns but he and him is not wrong it's just more that um, those are my supermarket pronouns and when I'm in you know justice spaces I actively use them there so it's not necessarily that's wrong it's just a perf yeah, some I wouldn't say preferred it's just a different layer of my life yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. And, 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 and if we can start there, because it's so rich already, because part of the um, point of really having these conversations, especially um, being graced with your presence, is that I know you can get into the messy conversations and hold the space. <laughs> okay, we'll see. <laughs> All right. Yeah. We, we'll do it together because that's what yeah. it's about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, deepening understanding and try and maybe use our mutual learnings and understandings, or at least mine anyway, to um, 
to see if there's any way that um, some light can perhaps be shed um, in some of the darker, you know, corners of things. So this concept of um, really incorporating gender affirming pronouns into a day to day and then having there be different layers. Can you just touch on where people in general, especially like teachers or therapists or mm. um, spiritual teachers, where could they, why is this important for them to kind of grok and get to know and be literate on and get educated about? <laughs> okay. I'm being a little bit put on the spot because you know, I'm not like a, I'm definitely not like a From your perspective. Okay, sure. I'm not a, I'm not an expert um, on gender oppression or, no. you know, pronoun use or any of that stuff. And, um, you know, I'm, as a trans person, I'm pretty like, I pretty go pretty unscathed, if that makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. through life. But uh, yeah, I think there's a certain amount of, you know, an embodied safety to, you know, it's, a, it's definitely like now a really important cue within like a therapeutic space to say like, this space affirms your existence and also it doesn't center a binary gender. So even if everybody's cis presenting, even, you know, we'd never know because a lot of people think of that of me, but um, it, yeah, it just opens like a kind of like, you know, it's always important uh, to, you know, center something that's different, center something that's not centered in like a therapeutic space actively. I think that's kind of where we are. Um, you know, a lot of times folks feel like pronouns are like kind of this cognitive thing to get around. But um, one way somebody's, uh, I was in a workshop that, uh, I was on a little island called Cortez and somebody, somebody his pronouns were it. And you know, they, it came up with these pronouns on their own, which is really interesting. Um, but you know, it's a small little island, and they wanted everybody to learn about why that's important. So, one of the ways that they described it, which I think was really, you know, I was fond of, is like instead of like thinking of it as this cognitive burden that you're gonna get, like this thunder is gonna strike you if like you use the wrong one, you know, because that's how people perceive education, right? In our paradigm, there's like, like once you say something wrong, there's a huge stick that's coming towards you or a thunderbolt. And to think of it more like it's like the learning, like realizing that there's like like way more genders than two. And it's, it's like, you, some, you know, people get to pick their own. And you, sometimes people have genders that just are themselves, like in a sense of like, it's completely unique to them, contained within them. Like, for example, for me, like I consider my gender Asian, you know, like it's part of, I can't separate my racial cultural identity from my gender. And, and so like people have their own unique positions. It's like kind of learning the name of flowers. If that, if that makes sense. So it's about like learning the name of, um, you know, beings that you're fascinated by as opposed to like this task. And I think that's, that's more and more, I think of where like, you know, just in general, like how, um, you know, therapeutic spaces want to orient to, you know, diversity of all kinds, including racial, cultural identity or, neurodivergence it's really yeah to see like to be fascinated by the world as opposed to um being punished for being wrong and that's usually what's happening when folks have issues with that kind of stuff yeah i love that emphasis from um whatever the punishment about being wrong and any sort of shame spiral that may be there too with that or something and this um 
alternative invitation, which is fascination, and which is, um, as uh, a Dharma teacher that I really like a lot um, on the West Coast, uh, Gil Fransdahl, um, talks about, he's like, what about wow? Wow. Like awe. Like just about learning, about being curious, just about staying in that place. Like, isn't that really the root of mindfulness? Like, what's here? What's here? And not making those assumptions, right? Like, is an apple not an apple? just because we don't name it an apple, like, is it still not something that we use, you know, it's fleshy and we put it in our mouths and we, it's juicy and we eat it. Mm -hmm. So of course it's still that. And every apple is different. Yeah. And you know, (laughs) there may be certain characteristics, right? But the gala apple is not the red delicious apple is not the pink lady apple or whatever the heck it is. And so why do we have to make people be, you're either an apple or an orange. Right. Yeah. Well, and apples are really funny because they have a really weird way of grafting them on top of each other and creating species and stuff. I think mm-hmm. I remember. Right. <laughs> so yeah, particularly, yeah, apples. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I think fascination is really important. I mean, of course, like, you know, so much of our learning process is baked in with the trauma response. It's, it's, it's easier said than done in reality, I think. Right. And- yeah, for sure. And, and, and so like just with there too, I mean, the trauma response, like so much of our learning process is baked in with the trauma response. Pause. I'm just going to give that a beat. And if you're a, you know, sort of Vipassana practitioner as I've been, or, you know, mindfulness practitioner that, you know, the Buddha's whole point is wrong view and ignorance is suffering. Like there is suffering, you know, due to wrong view. And so we're trying to sort of see through the clouds, like remove the occlusions. And a lot of what occludes us somatically is our trauma. (laughs) So it's not who you really are, but it's what gets locked up and stored in the body based on whatever other kinds of um, stuff gets frozen or whatever inside and that the whole point is to you know let it flow like the river right to to just like get back into our natural balanced state of being so that we can respond appropriately and that for certain populations that's more difficult than others because it's just ongoing like whatever we survived is one thing and then there's just stuff sometimes it's just like okay this is like baked into the fabric of patriarchy which you know is kind of what we live in now mm-hmm. so and I'm not sure where you want to start with that. If you want to start with the body or if you want to start with something else or anything that I said that maybe piqued your interest. Mm. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think maybe we can even start with like the conversation we're having before. Yeah. We turn on the record button. Of, like, like, where are we now? Where are we now? Um, you know, in terms of like, so there's been, um, you know, specifically, actually, mindfulness, we're talking about a practice that really, I think, entered into the U.S., like, would it be, like, late 60s, early 70s, maybe slightly before that, because I feel like D.T. Suzuki and Zen practice is introduced in the 50s or something. Um, but, like, you know, as we talked about, a lot of the, yeah, a lot of teaching modalities, you know, within Western psychotherapy, um, and healing modalities are really having to look at things like, 
you know, like one of the things we're talking about, the fact that we're talking about like how to do pronouns in therapeutic spaces shows you like, you know, where the curve is, right? Like where are, where we actually are. And yeah, yeah we're just, I think, you know, we're just starting to really review, um, you know, these practices had that have been around now for about, I think, 50 years. And like, I think it's really important to talk about where, yeah, where, where are we now? And also, like, in the midst of that, there's also the whole, like, you know, like, shambhalas and shambles, you know, if we want to talk about Buddhism and mindfulness, like, one of the places, you know, where, um, like, one of the resources for, you know, white Americans that have been around is, like, kind of imploded. And that's kind of, like, where, where we live in, you know. Uh, so I think it's, like, a really um, interesting place to start to talk about. And maybe, like, you know, it's, like, a, it's like kind of, like, a gunky place, which is kind of why I like it. But Yeah, it's a messy conversation. I mean, you know, <laughs> so like, messy. we were talking about Lama Rod Owens and, you know, their, their book, uh, you know, Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams and um, Jasmine Sidula and their uh, book Radical Dharma. And, you know, it's about having messy conversations, right? Like, you can't you can't cook the meal without making the pot dirty, you know? No. <laughs> yeah. And, and I'd say like, it's even messy sensations, right? It's not even just the, the cognitive, the, the, like spoken layer. It's, you know, messy sensations that we're dealing with. Yeah. So talk about that if you don't mind, like what is a messy sensation in the body and how do we deal with that? Cause a lot of times, you know, if we're doing meditation practices, like, um, you know, Goenka and the style mm-hmm. of Ubankan and all of that, they'll talk about, body scans and you know mbsr kind of came out of that i think a little Mm. bit and you know like just the idea of what it is to be in the body but it's about as dan siegel talks about you know sort of the window of tolerance and and are we able to be with more of what's here even if it's uncomfortable or it's not as pleasant of a sensation and when is that okay and when is that not okay when we're talking about trauma in our bodies that we're living with yeah, I mean, specifically, I think we can talk maybe about that, like, um, you know, in a historic sense, you know, I'm glad you mentioned the window of tolerance and messy sensation. So I think one of the things that's been real is that, like, messy, like, there's been a very narrow range within messiness was tolerated up till now within, like, therapeutic spaces. So that's the reality that we're starting to see is that, like, for example, um, stuff about family issues, like how we, our relationship to our family and stuff like that was within that messy, narrow, like kind of actually narrow space. Because actually when you look at it, like, you know, folks like people of color, trans folks, like the window of what they're going through is a lot wider. Like there's a lot more stuff happening, right? And there's something about, there's been like a, uh, the way I look at it, there's been like a time period of like cultural foundation building that's been going on for the last 50 years or so, especially in like white cis America. Um, and I include, you know, Canada inside of that, you know, like white cis North America, essentially. It's like, is with building the window of tolerance to actually able to talk about these issues now in, in essentially 2020. And um, yeah, so I think that's really interesting. A lot of, you know, even when we're talking about the messiness of life, a lot of the times things like racism and transphobia weren't included in that messiness for a very long time in, in healing spaces. So, you know, 
but I, I think what's interesting now is what you're seeing is that like the the last I guess 60 years oh no 50 years yeah well, it's 50 to 60 years of that foundation building and and through like this you know psychotherapeutic practices and healing practices there's you know there's accountability now being asked for for that work and you know I think there's a real responsibility to apply like you know talking about the window of tolerance and and rather than just talking about a window of tolerance as like an individual path and journey because you know that's part of the the healing journey right is like opening up your you know you you continue to titrate and regulate within the window of tolerance and you're also doing the work to expand the window of tolerance by healing trauma what we're seeing now is that um you know maybe before that journey was considered an individual's journey that they take out kind of like not like at their own leisure, but there's leisure is a weird way to put it, but like there's individual responsibility to self, which I think is still true. And, but what's being revealed now is that like, that is not an individual journey. That's actually a collective accountability problem. So, because when we, you know, um, when we have trauma in our body, we, you know, like, we all access privilege and power in some shape, right? So when we go out of our window of tolerance, so we're in, now we accessing like a child, like trauma state, like we're accessing a state of helplessness that's childlike and we're having a trauma response from that place, but we have uh, adult power combined with privilege and position. So you have, uh, you know, you have, um, yeah, the influence of being male, influence of being white, you, or able-bodied and various like social power that is combining with these child like helpless responses but up till now we've been kind of like not necessarily looking at that layer what actually happens when a person's in that trauma state and how do they access things like white privilege that's something we haven't really talked about and so that changes the conversation about healing and, and even talking about the window of tolerance building that it's not just like an individual journey that you make time for. If you have, it's kind of like, it's kind of, it's not like this optional thing in life so much as like an actual responsibility to uh, the community that you're in. Yeah. I'm, I'm just going to repeat. Thank you. That's beautiful. Um, just going to repeat something that you said and reflect it back to make sure that I got it right. When someone is in a trauma state, how, are they accessing white privilege when they're in a position of a healing space as perhaps even a leader? Yeah. Or not even just a leader, just in everyday life. Mm -hmm. I mean like the simplest example, you know, it's, it's like, um, like a simple example. I think, you know, you said you talked to Resma. I feel like I'm sure you talked about this is, is when like a police officer shoots an unarmed young black man, like the, you know, I think something we have to recognize is a police officer is in a help, helpless state internally. You know, we, they're, they're in an adult body, um, but have adult guns. They like, you know, very often have adult white privilege. Um, they might be male, like all this stuff's adding on top. But the place where they're responding to the world from is a childlike state inside, right? And so this is something that, you know, so when you look at that, yeah, there's actually no, like, I mean, it's, there's a culpable responsibility to actually healing that's not actually a, it's not an individual responsibility only. It's actually a co collective community 
held responsibility, it has some accountability baked into it. And that's something that we haven't really talked about in psychotherapeutic spaces. And, and you know, you know, definitely, you know, for sure, and like white, white, you know, dominated, which is most of them, like therapeutic spaces that, yeah, that, that it isn't framed that way. You know, that, that's for sure. Like it's healing is, I think, often seen as an option. Whereas if you're the person receiving the violence from people not being healed, that's not really an option anymore. And right. That, yeah. But, and it was never an option. I think that's the point. It was never an option. It was being perceived as one. But I think, I think it just like took a lot of time for us to reach a place and say like, wait a second, you know? And that isn't to say that like, again, like, that we need to go back in time and self-flagellate ourselves for, you know, like it's, I think there's a certain reason of like, we couldn't get here without that experience. It's been frustrating, but you know, like that's been the reality, you know, and we can't discount how big this stuff has been, you know, but when I say accountability, I think there's an important thing. Like I'm getting kind of hot. I know it's the temperature, mm-hmm. but like, you know, for example, like, um, I mean, talk about, um, uh, you know, broadly, like the Me Too movement, right? What you don't really talk, hear about, what you, what you don't actually listen, like you, you don't, you're not actually up to picking up in those, in that conversation about Me Too is like, like, for example, how much mindfulness and somatic work is behind that as a, as a, as a foundation? Mm-hmm. Probably a ton. It took like 50 years of that resource around accessing the body sensations and feeling safe enough for that to happen. Mm. That's probably not something that a lot of people discuss. Right. Um, but you know, like say, you know, you can say the same for a lot of movements, but I'd wanted to bring that one in particular because it's a really intersectional thing. That's interesting. So that's, there's a foundation. Of and that's that a good work. thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's an amazing thing. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's just to notice like a public phenomenon underneath that, Mm-hmm. There's a certain amount of somatic safety people needed to be able to voice their experiences that way, right? Absolutely, right. And and that's still ongoing. People are still learning about how trauma behaves in the body. I don't I don't think we're nearly at like a good state in terms of like public understanding around trauma and how it works. But you know that you know it's. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, the learning curve is is steep, but I think once you get it, I think, um, you know, I was listening to Stephen Porges do um, a live call and I asked him a couple of questions last night. Um, he is the author of poly- researcher in polyvagal theory, as you know, um, yeah. which is nervous system regulation for the listeners who may or may not know. There's another podcast that I had done with him where he um, talks a lot about this kind of stuff. And his point was, was when you're meeting someone, as you say, in the child state, in the trauma state or whatever it is, when you're meeting them, what you're meeting is a physiology that's stuck in a place that can't move beyond that place, right? And um, it can be, you know, the fight, fight, freeze, you know, it can be the submit, attach, it can be the various ways in which we show up, which could be, you know, self-shaming and down, depressed, internally, you know, sunken, it could be out there harming people physically or yelling at people physically. It could be manifested behaviorally in a variety of ways. But his point was, if we can shift it to understand, to less about the behavior or the attitude or the personality or how they feel about me, which is the whole point of mindfulness is non-identification. You're not taking it personally. When we get it into a physiological state, this is their physiology and their adult body responding from this trauma place. It kind of like deflates the balloon a little. 
mm-hmm. and opens, I think, the door to a little bit of compassion, curiosity, not if you're the person who's the black man in the driver's seat of the car that was pulled over who now has a gun being pulled on him by a white officer in that position. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. that is just a, you're under threat, right? No, yeah. holds, no, no holds barred about that. Mm-hmm. But I think that that's really important because to understand that in psychoeducation is also another one of the invitations. We can have cultural responsiveness and cultural competency, and we can have an understanding about those pieces, like you said, cognitively are more left brain, and somatically we can have the embodiment, but also the psychoeducation piece around like what's really going on with the body and the nervous system. Yeah, I mean, I think Resma is somebody you know, you've mentioned again, some you know. Resma Menachem is like somebody who's doing a lot of that psychoeducation, really talking about, like, I think doing workshops for police officers about trauma. So they're like, they understand, like, you know, I think Resma in his book, if I'm not wrong, um, yeah, writes about like the vicarious trauma, secondary trauma that police bodies go through from witnessing violence every day and like how real that is and important for them to understand that and, you know, um, you know, approaching that. And, I think where I was going to, you know, with all that being done and said, I think the interesting part for like, um, you know, just generally the psychotherapeutic community to be accountable for is like, let's say we talked about Me Too, right? And we talked about how like mindfulness has been providing kind of like, and also like, um, you know, other practices like Afro-diasporic dance, like, like almost like all, if you actually look at all, white Western modalities or Western modalities, so-called, there's almost always cultures of color being resourced for them. That's from everything somatic experiencing to Hakomi method to continuum. Say it again. They'd have a what? They're resourcing cultures of color. All of them. They're resourcing cultures of color. Yes, absolutely. All all of them. Like there's not, I don't, I can't think of one or like, you know, also there's like, obviously there's European animist and indigenous practices as well but largely um, yes yeah it's like 95 96 percent you know totally. like you, you know like um they're not it's not a discovering of anything new right it's no. that you, and, and unfortunately um there's a lot of um integration without attribution and you know of of where these practices have you know either come from or you know how they were originated and then they're just sort of being appropriated which is also um good that they're being shared really challenging that they're not being honored in their origin yeah and i think that's like what you know when i'm talking about accountability you know saying like that me too has benefited you know um first you know me too being you know like uh like something that's originating out of black women's you know uh, movements and then also being taken on wide widely you know across racial cultural boundaries and, and white women really benefiting from it let's be let's be real about it there's a really palpable accountability that shows up because a lot of the tools that gives people the ability to speak out, like for example, around gender oppression comes from cultures of color. Like the root thing there is, you know, you start to see is that like how, how pervasive like white supremacy is in terms of a culture that splits the mind and body and how much resourcing has been done of, you know, you know, of our ancestors, you know, you and I, even like of our cultures have been resourced for, um, I, I read that you're Dominican Haitian, you know, I know that continuum, I think resources Haitian dance, I'm pretty, 
like that's like a founding you know i'm japanese and like feldenkrais to hakomi to like almost like uh, yeah it's hard to think of a somatic practice that doesn't integrate like japanese somatics and martial arts and meditation practices right so this has been going on for a long time and i think there's you know it's kind of like the receipts are piling up because the you know like you're starting to see the collective benefit of of those practices that have been being stewarded in in like a large way out you know out there and also the receipts are piling up of like okay there's something to be talked about and accountable for and so the institutions are having to <laughs> I don't know, maybe this is a bit of a punk conversation, but like, you know, there's, there's a palpable like accountability. There's, Listen, there's it, it's an appropriate conversation. I mean, I was having a conversation with my mindfulness um, mentor um, a couple years ago about saying, you know, what is it going to take to have um, large retreat spaces become more culturally responsive and competent um, in an embodied way as an organization, as opposed to, um, for example, inviting a um, mindfulness, you know, person of color or, you know, LGBTQ, you know, teacher or try to invite that demographic to a retreat. What does it mean to actually have the board of directors, to have the, you know, people at the head of the organization, to have all of the staff sort of do the kind of trainings that are available now, whether it's a white awake training, whether it's um, Patty Dye's, you know, racism class, whether it's um, some of the LGBTQ, you know, diaspora awareness or, um, you know, ableism, uh, you know, education awareness. Like, those are the kinds of things that I think that if the time were taken to actually move through some of that education and also some of the classes that I know I've taken um, on both ends of the spectrum, right? Because I'm mixed. You mentioned the Haitian Dominican side. On the Italian side, although that was very much a marginalized community at the turn of the century here in the United States slash Turtle Island slash, you know, um, America, um, that that has become Eurocentric dominant culture now pretty much, right? So for a long time, I moved around in white spaces um, unchecked as um, a completely unaware, ignorant person of the totality of my uh, intersectionality. I was aware of it, but not in an embodied way. Yeah. And, and that by being able to take some of these other classes, by being able to access white spaces, mm -hmm. as well as spaces for people of color or for women or, you know, it really brought to the fore to me why this conversation is, is needed. Um, and, and how, unless you kind of go through that work, you don't really get it and you can get stuck in a shame spiral of like, Oh, I didn't know. Oh, I feel bad. Oh, now what I, you know, what can I do or something like that? And that that really doesn't move the needle forward in the way that, um, naturally, like you say, with these bigger movements, it is moving forward. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think one of the, one of the when we talk about like spaces and how they're you know articulate um competency and stuff it, it's it's a lot of it's done in the frame of accessibility right like access to an inclusion right and, and i think that's like kind of like maybe like the trap door um you know it, it's kind of like the you know like fawning you know, like a, it's like a fawning response to the threat. Like there's a threat of like, oh shit, we're going to get called out for being racist. Let's include people or let's make it accessible. And it's actually, I don't think really, um, 
accessibility matters, but it's actually like a tip of the iceberg. It's a very small exactly. Like what really needs to be done? I don't, okay, so, you know, at least when I do client work and I can feel my body temperature also rising again, it's like. Um, and when you say that, I love the yeah. way that you're describing it. I can feel my body temperature rising again. And some people might immediately jump to the story about that, right? And so in mindfulness, we're separating the sensation <laughs> from the actual way in which we feel about the sensation to the story that we tell ourselves about the sensation. And you're just naming it as pure sensation that the body temperature is rising right now, which is what's happening for you. Yeah. I think, I think, yeah. yeah. I, I think I'm just like excusing myself if I, if I blabber. <laughs> no, no. But what I'm saying is, is that like someone might say like, oh, this is getting uncomfortable or gee, I don't really want oh, right. to still hang in here. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, do you see what I'm saying? Like, or, or, you know, we're talking about the, you know, circling back to the window of tolerance that you're just naming the pure sensation. And that's, yeah. that's part of the work is all I'm trying to say. But anyway, oh yeah, 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 absolutely. But it's so uh, ingrained in you. You're not even. Like, you're like, <laughs> oh right, 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 right. I mean, yeah. For me, it's just like you know, if I, it's like checking myself as well. You know, like, right. Love and, it. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, it's it's like a hot topic because it's actually not so much that white people need to delete themselves out of spaces, stop teaching, or even include people of color. See, this is like actually like all smoke and mirrors. Uh, anything done from a trauma response, um, you know. Uh, or what I would call like a insecure cultural attachment doesn't turn out to be that great of a solution. I love that insecure cultural attachment. That's amazing. Yeah. So what I mean by that is like you know um, that gets that gets in a bit of conversation. I'm gonna sort out some of this stuff. Is but yeah, accessibility and inclusion is not actually like when you think about okay. So when you think about insecure attachment in a relationship, right? Like typically. You're like, oh, like um, you potentially did something that hurt somebody, and now you need to anxiously hold them close. And like, did we do? Did I? Did I? Oh, I'm sorry. Like, can I? Like, uh, like I do this all the time. So it's not like I'm trying to, you know. Or you that, believe that you did something to hurt someone, even if you sure. didn't, right? But sure, you have sure, yeah. some, yeah. Your response is that kind of like grabbiness, or we would call it craving. And yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like it could be a little tick, and it, maybe you think you is a catastrophe, right? A lot of situations happen from something like very small like that, and so like when we're being anxious, we're also probably ambivalent, right? So a lot of when I say cultural insecure, insecure cultural attachment is like as let's say as a white person or to you know in reference to a black person or me in reference to indigenous person, we can have these responses that are really like. Um, essentially like reflects our insecurity and our cultural attachment to our own cultures and not or to the land so not feeling actually um not feeling deserving of being here in this space on turtle island can show up as this kind of grabbiness and needing the other person to soothe our insecurity of actually being here and that's a lot of what like inclusion accessibility in white spaces ends up being is like oh shit like we did something wrong and now all the, the body's flooded with but not still dissociative but not understanding but like flooded with these sensations of like realizing you know because everybody knows this is the thing the body knows the body knows that white supremacy is fucked up when we've been living in it for like hundreds of years the body knows that it's the rest of us that's dissociated from that reality right and not to say dissociation is like a bad thing but again when we're talking about dissociation and white supremacy there's an accountability to not be dissociative frankly yeah. over time 
right? Like I understand it's a coping mechanism, but we're talking about right. It's what? adaptive to a point, and then when you're aware of some of it, then you got to move through working yeah. it out. Yeah, and this is the thing. That's the this is the thing that messes up up about like talking about these things in 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 a relationship to things like social justice. Is that there's a lot more accountability associated with healing than we think. But anyways, um, yeah, like when what what organization gets that memo that they've screwed up and they go into panic mode what they don't account for is like how much of that um, is actually insecure cultural attachment behavior and so and that comes from like feeling like i actually don't feel like i belong here and that actually shows up in the body somatically that's something that people don't really register is that like the idea that we don't belong here we don't deserve there's violence happening violence allows us to exist creates insecure cultural attachment between us and the land. This is something a lot of indigenous folks, you know, like um, who do um, indigenous social work and stuff understand. So like a cultural attachment is a language that um, a woman named Estelle Samard, who kind of like talked about a cultural attachment theory kind of came up with. Um, I use it in a kind of different sense. I kind of independently started, you know, using the word, but then, you know, I recognized her um, research, but, because you know, mm-hmm. I come from a somatic psychotherapeutic background as opposed to like uh, like a community social work background um, mm-hmm. as far as I understand but yeah like that's what floods and so doing this inclusion and diversity stuff in that place of insecure cultural attachment is just as good as like you know craving and grabbing onto your partner in a relationship when you think you know you spill milk on them mm-hmm. like it's about as good it's going to work out in just the same way. Yeah, yeah. I love yeah. this. No, <laughs> Basically, no, no. that's what it comes down to. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that's, and that's such a beautiful thing. And this could be said in academia. This could be said in corporations. This could be said, I mean, this isn't, but I feel like the onus is, especially in these healing or more healing oriented spaces um, to be um, sort of, you know, even more um, on game about this, you know? Um, yeah, absolutely. That's where we do the role modeling, 100%. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's so funny because, you know, what you're naming something that I've kind of, you know, mulled over. Like if I was holding a marble, it would be sort of like, you know, rolling in between my fingers. You know, I've mulled over this um, sort of thing <laughs> yeah. um, for a long time around to what degree is precisely what you're talking about, dissociation, trauma response, you know, child reactivity in an adult body, in um, you know, white supremacist culture, to what degree is that um, sort of just fodder for like, and this is just a mulling over, like I said, it's the marble in my fingers. Um, It's not some set thing. You know, is that the neuroses? Is that the anxiety? Is that the, you know, where all the pharma companies come in? And, you know, like, yeah. and, and, and so I always ask the question, like, well, who does this benefit? Where, where you know, there's, we know that there's like overt benefit for, for some folks, but where right. does it also benefit in other ways? And I don't mean benefit like for the greater good. I just mean who's, you know, getting the short term, you know, gain or hit and our planet is suffering and our bodies are suffering and our communities are suffering. And how do we shift then out of that? I mean, it's just, it's a marble in my fingers. It's not, I'm not saying this is the big theory of the world. So yeah. And and cultural somatics, um, at least as I understand it, because Resma also uses the term cultural somatics. They've been using it actually for longer than I 
And, you know, we have very adjacent practices, but I think there's some differences in our work, so I'm not going to speak for him, but in how I hold cultural semantics, right? Um, cultures are bodies, right? So big groups of people, you know, Turtle Island people, voting white middle American men are a body. Like every group of people has a body um, that's made up of, of a network of relationships. So, you know, everybody has a nervous system. So this, this, this is going to get somewhere. So like, you know, let's say like on the internet, when you share like a, a viral post, you know, we are going through an internal experience of like, Oh yeah, this is great information. And then the internet itself is also experiencing that neurologically. So that's kind of like one of the easiest ways to visualize that there's a cultural body and a cultural nervous system. Right. And so what this goes towards is that, you know, I feel like the question you're asking is what a lot of us ask, especially when you uh, take on activist work and realize, you know, social justice is a thing that's important. Who knew? Um, <clears throat> it's like we search for the boogeyman. We're on a search for like the, 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 the what, who is the person benefiting from all this, right? But the thing is, yes, there, we can construct it that way, right? We can talk about, you know, the 1%. We can talk about the 1% being white, cis, male, and straight, you know, mostly, like 90% of them. We can talk about that. But that is, that is truth. That is absolutely truth. But, you know, just kind of like in quantum physics, like when you go to a deeper, subtle layer of truth, the world shifts. You know, like how like, um, so you have like Newtonian physics where apple falls to the ground, you're like, this is gravity, right? And then like, you go to quantum physics where the apple never existed here. And it's actually, there's no, you know, everything is in everything. And the apple never fell because it was always there. And, you know, mm -hmm. it was just like, like quantum physics is bananas. Like, you're, like nothing works this way you thought it was. Mm -hmm. That's kind of how I describe cultural semantics. So we think, you know, we have their Newtonian mind that's, you know, that's important. That's the layer of reality we have to live in. Like we can't live as if Newtonian physics doesn't exist and apples don't fall from trees. But we also can't ignore that quantum physics is real and like nothing works the way we think it does either. And right. And, and from the perspective of, you know, the teachings that I've studied, it would be the non-dual teachings as opposed to the, you know, thing that, you know, my mentor always says, like, don't forget your social security number. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. careful when you're crossing the street. Don't let the bus yeah. hit you. Yeah. So, so the finding the boogeyman is kind of like that Newtonian. It's like, it's almost like looking for a quantum answer in the Newtonian world. Because in the Newtonian world, there's the 1% and the white cis straight males that are getting all the benefit. They have all the power. And that's, that's just how it works. And it's like really easy to see. We got to dismantle that system. They're the opposition. We got to fight there. And we think, but th there's a problem there. There's a problem there because um, the deep, subtle shifts that happen in the world don't happen on the Newtonian layer. This is something that it's really tricky for us to understand. This is a big part of like Japanese somatics, um, like, you know, that practices like Aiko and stuff like are really rooted in this kind of understanding of the world, that the physical Newtonian layer that we see is not the most powerful layer that we're living in. It's actually the quantum type, yeah. you know, like blah, 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 blah space that we're in. Right. So what does that mean? That means that like, um, there's no boogeyman. I think that's a simple answer. Or there is a boogeyman, but it's actually just trauma itself within cultural bodies. Because what we usually see is like, you know, we're looking for the boogeyman in a Newtonian world and looking for, 
um, that 1% and locating them. And, you know, there's all kinds of ways we want to destroy them is by taxing them to smash their buildings and all that stuff, which is fine, which is great. But what we start to see in a quantum sense, there is no such thing as a clear identity of self. You know, in, a, in the cultural somatics, there's inherently the self is queer. The distance between you and another person is filled with all this information. So there's information experiences that are more you and less you. Some things are really, really me and really close. And other things a little bit further in, a, in the community space. And then other things are really not me. But it still exists on a continuum as opposed to like a harsh like self-other binary, right? Well, yeah, so what it's is that? process. It's not fixity. Yeah, yeah. This is like a really fundamental Buddhist concept, to, right, of um, causality even, and karma, right? So what happens there? What happens there is that like you, the, the other doesn't exist as much as you think they do in this non-relational way. It means that like, so in cultural semantics, you look at that as like the boogeyman is in the entire system now. It's, it's everywhere. It's infused everywhere. And it's not so much oppositional. It's more that, let's say, like, when a body is um, unwell, as many of us bodies are, and that's okay, but when not balanced, it experiences pain. And that pain becomes localized somewhere, right? So, you know, in, in cultural semantics, we talk about, like, oppression as trauma, not the cause of trauma just, but as trauma. And what I mean is that, like, so when violence shows up in the body, that's like a body experiencing pain locally. So when violence in a community happens, it's like, for me, that would be experiencing like having tense shoulder pain. And like thinking about that on like a Newtonian level is just like trying to like feed painkillers and da da da. When you actually bury deep inside, you actually see that's probably maybe related to a gastrointestinal issue that's related to a trauma issue that related to ancestral trauma issue that's related to a social issue. And it's like widely spread out. Yeah. So the same thing happens with cultural bodies is that like, you know, a lot of the time people who are marginalized experience the pain of the cultural body. That doesn't mean that the whole body itself isn't in imbalance. So when we're trying to look at who is, who is benefiting, you know, it's one of those, like there's really, in a sense, when you look at it as a totality, there's nobody that is actually, there is no like, one individual that is like sitting behind a lever trying to benefit from this you know, a whole system that is a whole body that's on a full whole body trauma response and what happens is that certain um people are dissociated into privilege that's kind of how we describe it so mm -hmm. you know so folks who are like the one percent um, you know white cis straight men you know, middle-class men are essentially dissociated from the reality of the world. That doesn't mean that their bodies don't know that. Those are two different things, but they're dissociated into a state that racism doesn't matter. Transphobia doesn't matter. All these things don't exist. Like they're living in a state of dissociation and privilege is actually a form of dissociation that's baked into our culture. It's not a, it's not a, it's not, see, the, the, the way you usually think about privilege is that it's about an advantage and it's about gains, right? And that's like the kind of Newtonian mechanism of it. But the more quantum thing that's happening underneath is that privilege is actually a trauma response, a dissociative trauma response happening in a wide way 
and there's no boogeyman because the entire cultural system is a trauma but it's trauma itself when you actually look at like where's where is the evil being right. it's actually just trauma itself there's no but and then there's no there's like there's no um, when that happens there's no like there's no one person pulling the lever, pulling the strings behind it. There is no one. Everybody's possessed in a way. We're essentially all possessed by the we're matrix. All in the same soup, you know, and, and, and we're all in the same, you know, different. As um, one of my other mindfulness teachers, uh, Gina Sharp says, you know, bag of skin, you know, we're, but, but we're all in the same soup. And, you know, what the difference that I hear you saying is, you know, we try to move away from things like good or bad, right or wrong, better or worse. Um, into, you know, the language of mindfulness, which is, you know, skillful and unskillful, like the Buddha was teaching, like helpful or not helpful, right? You know, um, and so the wisdom in that, which is all about what the insight, you know, tradition is, is trying to reclaim the wisdom. The wisdom is the knowing itself, the equanimity, the balance, the way that, you know, it is when it's processing, right? We're in this process of becoming, becoming, becoming. We're not like, becoming something right we're always like you know dying and you know being born and dying like all the time right mm -hmm. um collectively individually somatically you know whatever cellularly whatever it is and that the rupture is the system that tries to impose something other than that emergence yes and the healing comes from your um, intentional setting of the compass of the awareness of that system, uh, you know, existing and, and, and sort of being a part of, a part of, within, if you will, to use, you know, imperialist language that English is. Um, uh, and then being able to sort of drop into the place where, okay, given all of that, as again, Reverend Angel Kira Williams says, none of us are free until we're all free, meaning that we're in this as a collective. We're in this, like your oppression is my oppression. My oppression is your oppression or the oppression is affecting us all, I guess is a better way to say it. Absolutely. In the framework that we're talking about. And even Carol Gilligan in the, in the interview that I did with her, she talks about patriarchy. Why does patriarchy exist or persist? Um, that's her new book. Um, with one of her students and she was talking about it as a defense against loss, a pre-defense against loss, hmm. right? So this Newtonian world or this social security number world that Jack Cornfield, my mentor, you know, likes to talk about is more along the lines of, I'm afraid to be hurt. I don't want to be vulnerable. Being intimate scares me, which is what? A trauma response. Yeah. Trauma is like very Newtonian. <laughs> like it's used the word and Newtonian matters because we live in it. Right. And right. essentially, yeah. Like, the work of, I think, Healing Justice, though, is about understanding the relationship, you know, like, um, between, like, that Newtonian and quantum world and making sense of their connection and how they relate to each other, you know, like, um, and that's why embodied practice is so important, relational practice is important. When we, because in relationship, we, you know, when we do relational embodied practice, we get to experience how the quantum shifts affect the Newtonian world. Yeah. So give me an example of a relational embodied practice when we're not just spiritually bypassing into the quantum world, which some people... Right. Well, um, I, I think, you know, like there's like a simple 
I mean, the simplest example is like sitting across from somebody and just holding them in some kind of, um, you know, unconditional positive regard and noticing the changes in their body, right? That's like, so there's like a quantum shift that's happening that's perception based, but then there's something Newtonian that shows up in the physiology. Right? And, and the same that can be applied to, um, you know, social justice work is, you know, a lot of the changes that, need to happen are mechanical changes in the system but underneath that we need um, we need something a lot more subtle yeah to drive that it's a subtle that drives the dense that's like one of the principles of that, right yeah so like the way i would say this again is um, when i'm working with clients as a somatic experiencing practitioner it's sort of like the more regulated and sort of ability to, for me to just be present in my body and aware of what's going on in my body and to behold, share, connect, witness, have there be no barrier, if you will, between the space that we're in at that moment is part of what's healing in this relational um, embodied way. Yeah. I feel that. Yeah. And and when you talk, when you kind of graduate that to like a cultural somatic kind of understanding and watching the effects like for example like um it's kind of how western society talks about movements you know like for example like you might say like the you know black civil rights movement there's these leaders and they did the work that's like the white western narrative is like there's these people that were leaders of organizations they rounded up people and made this huge change that's like the narrative that's sold right that's that's the story of black liberation according to the history channel or whatever right how we understand it mm-hmm. um and i'm a dancer um you know i'm a street dancer uh, so yeah you're great like, people gotta go uh, to your instagram page and <laughs> no 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 don't do that <laughs> no, they can, they can. yeah yeah they can but you know like uh, you know a lot of my like um uh social justice kind of orientation came from uh studying in those street dances um starting about 10 15 years ago so i started pretty late in my life um, i'm 41 now and so it was in my 30s or late 20s that I started exploring that. But so what people don't get, I mean, this is what I mean, the subtle forms the dense, is that like, okay, so when you're talking about the civil rights movement, our narrative often focuses on, on often even, let's say, like even name that like men, even like powerful men in leadership positions, not all exclusively, but that's kind of where, you know, that's kind of where it centers and not saying those people aren't heroic and important and, you know, including like the, the trans and uh, folks and the women, you know, who are also show leadership, you know, all those people being really f- important, not taking anything away from that. But what you start to see and understand is that like the, the um, when you're talking about bottom up approach, right. And you do it uh, in somatic therapeutic work, you notice like what supports these movements is actually like parties gatherings yeah like soul train (laughs) you know like really actually like or actually soul train is like part post civil rights era but you know i mean like the like especially as a dancer it's like the gathering of bodies of color nonverbal communication the spread of nonverbal language across the americas um through um you know an ancestral lineage being kept because of um you know maintaining african uh, Afro diasporic rhythms, movement styles, you know, like, and language alive and culture. Like, that's actually, when you actually look at 
what's happening underneath is that. And we, what we tend to remember is, is like these great acts that were, you know, undoubtedly uh, amazing things. And, you know, people died because of these things, you know, like really important. But underneath that also, what sustains it is like, you know, because there's a culture of genius that's so, such a part of our white patriarchy that supports like this narrative one heroic individual. Really, this person's an expression of this emergent phenomena that's been happening at a cultural somatic level all the way through. And that's what I mean in a cultural somatic approach to, you know, moving from the subtle to the dense. So I think a cultural somatic approach will look at like, okay, the great, like the hero will emerge. The hero will emerge as long as you don't stop partying. This is like the idea. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I love that too, because, um, you know, again, that part of the whole fulcrum here is joy, is connection, is music, is dance, is all of the things that are um, nourishing, generative, life-enhancing, connective. You know, I think it's sort of what, uh, to go back to the Buddha's language, you know, sangha, right? You know, spiritual friends, Kalyanamita, you know, whatever, that you're, you're not in isolation. There's a whole fabric. Everyone's, you know, this, this thread, this current is, is, as you keep on saying, sort of operating, you know, undulating, you know, and eventually, you know, the thing, you know, gets kind of pushed, pushed out, up, right? Yeah. yeah and that's what I mean. Like the, there's roots underneath, right? Like a network. Yes. And, that's, and, and, and the cultural somatic approach would be like to, understand that and actively cultivated that within an organism so this is like as opposed to inclusivity and accessibility through token right. right we're not just doing the barbecue because we have to like have a barbecue we're doing the barbecue because we recognize and we have an awareness over the fact that this is an integral part of our overall connectivity and exactly healing yeah exactly and there's something there's something about you know like you know, like, like the way that a lot of organizations approach inclusivity and accessibility is like kind of like grafting things to places that have no nutrients. So there's like no network underneath. So just like, you can't, you can't just like plant something where there's nothing been happening. <laughs> I love how you just, you just said don't that. Do that. Grafting things to places where there are no nutrients. Exactly. Like I was recently introduced to a program that was meant to reduce gun violence in um, a Brooklyn community, um, in communities of, of color and um, youth violence. And, and, in, and it was like the wrong fit. The people who were doing it were, um, there was not a person of color there. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they had good intentions and a lot of money, but I was like, I don't really know if this is, you're grafting it to the place where there's nutrients. Like there's a misfit. Here, you know, missing. yeah, absolutely, and I think this is again like the kind of like boneheaded like thing about white supremacy culture is that I think you know this is like where I think I get really hot again is like where um, white people, white healing, white help needs to recognize is that like you know when you look at you know, especially poor black and brown communities across the Americas, as well as, you know, like including, you know, as well, yeah, as like indigenous communities as well. Like, it's like, people have been doing this shit forever. Like, if you want to talk about reducing youth gun violence, black and brown youth, you know, you know, within black and brown communities, right? Like black and brown youth have been working on that for ages. 
like this is I think this is like they kind of like misnomer misthought like um, you know for example uh, I think a really useful example is like uh, crumping so you know crumping is like a dance from I think the west coast um, you know it takes after like shamanism and you know there's that group ritual and stuff you know when you actually look at the dance itself and um, there's a social social structure baked into crumping right like um, like if you are if you are an elder which means you might be like 25 yeah right because this is you're talking about family you know, cultures where the adults have been incarcerated because of the crack like this is the war on drugs is the aftermath of that right so you have like a person who's like I, I don't know I'm gonna make up a name like um, like the elder's name might be like you know ghosty or something that's their name and so their disciples might take after their name and be a little ghosty right and what i understand about crump is that it replaces a family structure that's been decimated by the war on drugs so and, and the crack era so you'd have like that person who's the elder who's really a young black youth is responsible it's other young black youth to go to school graduate it's not just like a dance mentor it's like a life thing and that and so and crump groups are called houses right the house of da 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 so you actually see that there's all these generative social structures so it's like it's totally to me ridiculous the idea that a white organization realizing there's this problematic thing that's happening in these communities and go in there with money and da 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 it's a waste of resources it's really all about like in the end attending to their own stuff when there's actually already it's like there's already regrowth regeneration happening within these communities they've been doing it forever that's the only way they've survived that's like all communities of color across the board you know, like indigenous black and brown like asian um pacific islander um, you know latinx like all across the board that's what people have been doing for generations and so there's a lot of cultural goods cultural somatic work coming out of that and again it's like the kind of like even with healing is like, no, like it's, it's, we have to reorient. It's like these like young, you know, like poor people of color are actually like leaders. <laughs> it's like totally opposite. It's like, you know, maybe they don't understand trauma. Maybe they don't have the language. Maybe they're working through things. Of course they need assistance. But by and large, what the, you know, like a lot of the, I would tell you is like a lot of, you know, as a dance movement person, like, you know, I train, have, have some training, expressive arts and dance movement therapy. A lot of the stuff that like we do in like dance movement therapy class, like we do in street dancing, like definitely, like we do movement exercises and, and expansion exercises and stuff. That's like what that they do all the time. Yeah. So like even just <laughs> it's like it's like it's kind of like a bananas idea to me that like we ignore the reality of these things happening on the ground and. I think a lot of, you know, again, inclusivity and accessibility is like has to start with some kind of humility and saying like, wait, it's no, like it's, it's not, it's not about like creating, like the creating the space for people of color to receive the gifts of white peoples, right. which is really just like resources of their own culture through like a white lens, because yeah. I don't care if it's called somatic experiencing, it's still mindfulness practice that comes right. from communities of color. Right. Like it, it doesn't like the neurological framing isn't, Right. Like how we experience the mediums, right? Like we don't experience these dance mediums, for example, as like the neurological and scientific background is important and the structure is important. But 
there is also like ritual and somatic traditions that these come out of that are totally still alive, are recoverable, and a lot of people of color actually already understand them. They come in with like at least um, like a, a broader understanding of those things. Like it's already baked into their culture, even if they don't like practice it. Like you, you know, like they are practicing it because they're living it. It's not a, and it's not like it's already, um, it's already woven in. It's already, there. It's already woven it in. never yeah, went but... anywhere. It was already always necessary and a part of everything, you know? So it didn't have yeah. to be removed in order to be reimported because it, it has always been part of what's kept the train going. Yeah. Like you don't have to explain to a lot of black folks about vagal toning because that spinal wave that, you know, like undulates and modulates the vagus nerve is a part of like black diasporic dance. It's like everywhere. It's everywhere. <laughs> like it's in the lifestyle itself. And, and that's not the language that might be used, but it, that, that, that shape is everywhere. That's exists in martial arts too. It's like, you don't. So I think there's something about reckoning with that, you know, reality. Yeah. Yeah. I, and, and, and I love that. And we're going to need to start to wind down, but I do think that that piece about, um, you know, I, a lot of people talk about evidence-based practice and they want things to be, you know, measurable. And how do you measure the quality of, of, of something in a quantitative way that is um, more intuitive or that is more um, meant about something that is, that is unseen, if you will, unseen, mm-hmm. depending on what eyes you're using to see. And I say eyes loosely, right? I mean, it's a metaphor actually more than anything. Um, as opposed to what your direct experience is, which is always, of course, that invitation in, in Vipassana practice and, and is what is your direct experience around this in your body, in your soma? What are you noticing? And how does it shift when you're in community and with these practices? And, um, and you just mentioned ritual and crumping and all of that. You know, I, I really think that that is the fundamental piece that a lot of communities especially as Ruth King says, you know, when we're not, she's the Dharma teacher who wrote Mindful of Race, um, not the inability or the inawareness around like, let's naming, claiming whiteness as a race, as opposed to just like, as the water that we're in, you know, mm-hmm. um, that, that as we can begin to shift into this place of like, in ri- we need ritual, and in the white awake work, for example, you go back and even if you're of European descent and have white skin or light skin privilege, you're looking at what were those rituals, right? Um, As opposed to just appropriating. And so that humility around that, I think is, is really beautiful and important. And the wisdom is there. Sure. It's really hard to find, but yeah, (laughs) I'll be real. In the communities, in the communities you're talking about that are crumping and stuff, the wisdom is yeah, there. yeah, 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 absolutely. It's not named with evidence-based practice research studies necessarily, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's there. Oh yeah, yeah. I think I, me- I think I meant towards more like for white folks um, doing ancestral healing work and trying to recover these ritual practices is a lot harder, frankly. Like it is actually a lot. Like. Um, and you know, we're wanting this down, but I think maybe it's helpful because, you know, I'm yeah. thinking, you know, you said like there may be mostly a white audience for this. So it might be interesting for white folks. Well, I'm making that assumption, but. Okay. <laughs> sorry, 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 world. <laughs> sorry. I, 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 I said that I'll own that. That was my. Okay. Opinion. Okay. Okay. Possibly. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me based on like my experience, right? I think there's something about, um, 
going at like yeah and, and also regarding like of course like crumping or popping and house dance they're not like they're not the pure ancestral authentic form or anything they're they're the forms for this generation but it they're also not dissociated from the reality of struggle and requirement of resilience and that what makes them authentic in this place now and i think what happens in white culture is that frankly that you know it's understandable people want that to be the water as opposed to like an actual race because that resiliency by and large doesn't exist within white culture that's been like deleted um so there's a long history of that like you know when you look at like the european culture which is the ancestral culture of white culture it's pretty void of somatics for a long time like anything that is earthy, anything that is rooted um, embodiment-wise has been deleted for at least 600 years or something like that. Um, you know, like, for example, I was talking to, um, there's a, a man named Michael Newton, who's a scholar on uh, Gale culture, so um, Highland culture. And, you know, he talks about, uh, you know, what people think of Scottish Highland dancing. And you know how, you know, a lot of folks practice Highland dance as a kind of like return to authenticity, right? The reality is you said like, what we know as Highland dancing is so impacted by the taste of the French court. So ballet is like, has so much, has so much influence over the posture of Highland dancing. We don't even know what Highland dance looks like, like what it was meant to look like from like the perspective of an indigenous Highland culture. There's absolutely no record. There's no way we can only, and it's, that's, it's interesting to realize that like, there's no semblance. It's this kind of like really um, aristocratic embodiment style has been disseminated all across Europe, right? And that's the legacy that a lot of white folks live in. That's, that's so that even when we try to go back uh, for a lot of white folks, there's nothing there. It's like, it's so far removed that, and so it's obvious that when you're coming from that place and have such poor cultural attachment base, we need to, I mean, when that happens, you know, like I did that, like I, I went towards like hip hop and culture to reintegrate myself. Like you need another place where there's embodiment and resilience still somewhat intact or like actually well intact even. And that's why a lot of people get pulled into cultures of color uh, who are white because, you know, I call it ancestral echoing. It's, it's, I don't think it's because people think, or maybe on some level they wish they were somebody else or something like that. But really what's happening is a desire to go back to the cultures that they came from or understand them. There's a it's cultural attachment, like craving that's trying to be fulfilled. And, and the Western therapeutic traditions are essentially representations of that craving and needing to go back to some kind of um, resource where ritual and embodiment, all that stuff made sense. And then that not existing within white culture, right? So needing to get to mindful practice, Afro-diasporic dance, like clown, like indigenous clowning, there's all, all kinds of stuff that is being resourced, right? And that's kind of, you know, the reality and one of the things, you know, that's interesting that comes out of that is like, you know, um, 
when we're on topic of Highland dance, it's kind of like a tangent almost, but interesting things happen. There's a style called uh, buck dancing. I don't know if you ever heard of it. It's in the Appalachians. And what it is, it's a mixture, right? This is fascinating. It's a mixture of, of um, there's a lot of black folks in Appalachia, right? And so the people of the Appalachia are like, are actually kind of like you describe yourself, like mixed actually, right? And so often some of them look white, but they're not actually purely white. I mean, you know, very few people are, but you know, that's a longer story. But yeah, they're like a mixture of like a, a different peoples actually. And there's a style of dance called buck dancing that comes from there. And buck dancing is a combination of Afro-diasporic dance and Highland dancing. And it looks totally different. The feeling looks more down. So there's like a, there's like a thud as opposed to like this up, up energy. Mm. And it's a study and it has a more Afro tone. And it's interesting because, you know, what you call like an ancestral echo is happening possibly is that when you actually look at buck dancing, it might be more like what Highland dance used to look like. Sure. But it had to go through like an Afro frame to land back where it actually may have came from. We ne never know. But you might imagine that like, like you had this Highland dancing thing or jigging or, you know, like just more like, you know, kind of like, you know, Scottish, Irish type of dancing that needed to actually mix with Afro culture to reclaim something how it might look like. And yeah. so I think in, in terms of the psychotherapeutic world, I think that's kind of where we are. Like it, there's been a process and now for things to really be alive in this next stage for you know, a lot of these um, healing traditions that have been stewarded in white spaces, there needs to be a lot more mixing. There needs to be a lot more opening up and there needs to be you know, like a recognition um, that, you know, wisdom held, you know, away from the center of whiteness. And like that can, that has a chance. Yeah. Like that has a, that has a, that has a chance of doing something. So I think that's kind of like where we are. Beautiful. So yeah, sure that is. A yeah, fine. no, I think that that's a rich, rich way to end, and I and I really, really appreciate that. And and um, you know, I just want to name you know a couple things that we've used terms um, in this conversation that some people might not be familiar with, and I would invite them to Google them or use whatever search engine you might like. Um, if it's something like cis or Turtle Island or crumping or any of that. <laughs> I would, yeah. I would invite you to just, you know, maybe take a moment um, if you've already spent this much time with us and, um, and then just kind of, you know, explore and see what happens because you might then sort of get a bigger, richer feel for um, some of the things that we're talking about. And um, I just want to also invite to before we leave, can you just share your website? Um, I love the name. It's called The Selfish Activist. Tell me where that came from, if you can. And, um, a little bit and, and, and tell people how they can find you. Yeah. Um, yeah. You can find me at selfishactivist.com. Uh, the name kind of originated from it being an oxymoron or a paradox, right? Of, um, so, you know, in, in Japanese somatics, there's a, there's a place called Hara 
you might know it, uh, you know, or the lower Dantian, um, you know, it's in the belly, abdomen, pelvis. And it's considered the true seat of your being. So you are not your heart, you are not your mind, you are your hara, mostly, like 90% or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, we're finding out that now that's like a neural network and the anchor of the parasympathetic nervous system. Who knew, right? Um, but uh, Sahara is a place of self and it's actually intensely selfish. It's about your desires. It's about what you want to eat, you know, like it's about sex, like, you know, all the things that are just like really about your selfish desires. And one of the paradoxes that comes up in, um, in Japanese somatics and practices like Aikido is that like being rooted in your desire it actually puts you in harmony with other beings. Like being rooted well in your desire and your selfishness actually puts you in good relationship with other beings. And so it's a kind of like a, a punkish kind of oxymoronic statement about um, how there's these two things that are considered separate. Because a lot of activist people like suffer burnout and stuff. Right? Yeah. And also a lot of it's about like giving something up yourself and self-sacrifice. And I'm kind of like, it's not really like that there's like a whole different thing so the word selfish activist to me like reflects that relationship to hara and it's really part of like my cultural identity too it's kind of just like slipped in there yeah yeah, that's kind of where it came from and also like i had to shout out to um there's a friend of mine uh who i wasn't friends with them then Uh, their name is emily wapnick and they had this uh ted talk about multi-potentialites I don't, I don't know if you know. It's like a really, it's like what ha- you know, multi-potentialized has a lot of different interests in life. And they had a book called, um, I forgot. There's a book about how to name your business. And it was about like picking like words that had like this like kind of contradictory f- flair or something. And so I did their exercise and that's kind of how it came together too. So um, that's the story. So shout out to Emily. They're a friend of mine now. Um, great. Yeah. yeah. I like that. The selfish activists and, and getting in touch with our inner wisdom. Yeah. I mean, I, I love that because your true hara is your wisdom place, right? I would think. And, um, you know, I, I saw a little thing that said, don't mistake your, your gut instinct for your trauma. <laughs> right, <laughs> don't right. mistake your trauma for your gut instinct. Like, right. Like we want right. to get with what our real true desire is, which is separate yeah. from like this craving or clinging or wanting more, more, more the insatiable piece of, of things, which is more like the ambivalent attachment you talk about and really get back to like, Hey, this is what my seat is in the midst of it all. My unique presencing in this Newtonian, you know, quantum world and however way I manifest or we manifest and um, yeah. And I got to get in touch with that. And then if we each do that, I I guess in theory, we'll be more harmonious as a collective and the work of cultural somatics um, is, is kind of, a little bit of map on how we get there one of them anyway yeah, yeah, yeah. it's definitely a map and yeah. and uh yeah and in, in my own practice particularly because i have you know asian somatic kind of ancestral lineage thing it's most of it yeah most of it's in hara yeah yeah beautiful it, yeah most of that mostly it's that <laughs> that's almost that's almost everything well it's, it's a good place to be. We're going to leave it there and um, invite people to check out Selfish Activists. And um, thank you so much for, for being with us and um, sharing your wisdom and your embodiment on Rebooted. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. Take blessings. good care. Yeah. Yes, blessings.